Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nimity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. This is Serious Privacy by Trustark. Here are your hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. So is that what we're doing now? We just start recording without introductions, without music and whatsoever? Well, we'll kick that off. We'll add it to it. But, you know, Paul and I, this is the first time we've spoken in three weeks or so since the last podcast recording. I mean, we email and we chat back and forth the first time we've seen each other. And of course, we just start talking about, well, the IAPP and the Global Privacy Summit. And Paul told me he thinks there's a Comic-Con right before the Global Privacy Summit. So, hey, Maleficent might make an appearance. (laughs) But yeah, we just start chit-chatting. And then we're like, oh, you know what? Our fans might actually want to hear the things we chit-chat about because otherwise, then we got to repeat it. When we turn on the recorder. That's true. Welcome to season four, Kate. Welcome to season four. Isn't this exciting? It's strange. I'd never expected us to make it this far. Right? And yeah, I get it. We don't have millions and millions of listeners, but the ones we do have are fantastic and we do a great job and we're not doing this to make money. We're doing it because both of us are passionate about privacy and we enjoy it. Absolutely. We enjoy it. Absolutely. So there are so many things to start with. We thought about having a guest there is on. Only, there is only one thing to start with. And? The unexpected question. The unexpected question. Oh, my gosh. Did my brain totally not do that? Okay. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I got one. <laughs> Ooh. What makes you feel wonderful? Ooh. See? See? These are difficult questions to start to start the year with, but when people say kind things about me or to me, even better. Oh, nice. I like that. I will say kind things to you. Maybe enough to offset the unkind things I say. When do you do that? I never hear those. (laughs) No, I was going to say, I rarely say unkind things. I tease people, but they're rarely unkind. I like that. You know, I might have to adopt that because it does make you feel wonderful. I mean, I think about the past the past year and what kind of unexpected thing made you feel wonderful. It was that. It was people unexpectedly saying nice things or recognizing us or giving a little gift, you know, that always makes someone feel wonderful. And of course, I always feel wonderful when I see my grandchildren. Of course. Well, there are, there are actually two more. When you say looking back at, at last year on yeah. specific moments, there was one when I attended the ABC conference, the privacy space in Leamington Spa, when somebody was just flabbergasted when I entered the room. That, that, was, that was a really nice moment, although also a little awkward, also very complimentary. You got that fan moment. Yeah, the fa- that was that was literally a fan moment. 
and they stand out because we don't get them often. The other one was during my birthday weekend, as I think I told you, brought a lot of friends to Brussels for the weekend for celebrations and they had written a song. This is, a, in any case, a Dutch tradition. I'm not sure whether the U.S. does it well as well for special occasions. But friends or family pick, a, pick an existing song and they write new lyrics and they sing that to you. So that's what oh, they did. That is awesome. I actually wrote a privacy song to the Frozen lyrics. Let it go or hold it tight. <laughs> it, it, I don't, I'll have to go back and look them up, but I wrote it to the Frozen lyrics. It was Probably more along the lines of rather than let it go is let me know. Might have been, don't know. But my favorite refrain that goes through my head all the time is, I want privacy, privacy, gotta have privacy and security. <laughs> but yeah, I can't sing, but there we go. But yeah, that, but I will tell you, let me, let me go back to the grandkid moment. My, my little one, the, the girl who's not two years old yet, she has learned to say Mimi in the past like nine months. And she still calls it a me, a me, a me, when she runs to the phone to show me. But she gets to the phone and you're going to see body language here. She goes, where Papa, where Papa? Really? She just <laughs> runs to the phone to see Mimi. But the first thing out of her mouth is not hi, it's where Papa. I'm like, really, dude? <laughs> I might take nah. that out, but. Nah, nah. But yeah, I'm like, I am but a pathway to the great man. So yeah, keep me humble. Anyway. Welcome to the patriarchy in 2023. <laughs> right. The year of the rabbit, people. Let's hope we don't hop around all the privacy laws and everything, if I can build that into the theme. But oh my gosh, in preparation, so much. Yes, it has not been a quiet month. No. And of course, Given the date that we are on, happy International Data Protection Day. Data Privacy Day in the U.S. and Canada. Okay. That caveat, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with it. And of course, my youngest daughter's birthday, which this year, she turns 30. If that doesn't make you feel old, I don't know what would. That doesn't make me feel old, but... It makes, it makes him judge me. No. <laughs> no judgments either. Oh my gosh. So Data Privacy Day, and we thought if we if we talked too long on this episode, we might break it up into two episodes for y'all, but they would be released together, not one one week and one the next week. But we'll take the second week off like we normally do, regroup, recalibrate, and get back into it. Speaking of which, if you would like to be a guest on our podcast and you've got a good voice for a podcast or a good personality for it, you don't just have a product to sell <laughs> because we get a lot of requests from companies that say we want to promote our product or we want to promote our service. That's not why we're here. We want to talk no. substance. We want to go into the nitty gritty details. And if there is a product that we want to talk about, then it's one that we select. Yeah, it's, it's one that we want to talk about, something that's new or something that's interesting or something we've had questions about that might be. Feel free to write us. What's our email address again, Paul? Well, our email addresses are changing, but for now, let's use podcast at seriousprivacy.eu. Podcast at seriousprivacy.eu. You can also go to our LinkedIn page for Serious Privacy. Drop us a note there. We get that. And I believe you can also message us on LinkedIn. So there's no excuse for not being able to reach out to us. You can make comments to the podcast, but let us know. But also, if you know someone that might be good, have on the podcast, 
I'm kind of on a rip the past week or two trying to prepare for the day one that I feel like we've had some big names from the EU on our podcast and some other countries too. We've had some big names on, but we haven't had big names from the U.S. on. It's true. Travis LeBlanc might be one of the one of the few because we've had him on, but we haven't had the really big names in privacy. So I reached out to Senator Mark Kelly from here in Arizona. I don't expect an answer. I don't expect it to go anywhere. I also reached out to Nula O'Connor at Walmart. Reached out to her, of course, would welcome them anytime on the podcast. So if you think of some names or you know some people that'd be good to have on that other people would like to hear from, drop us that note as well. I mean, I'm still after Kamala Harris, but I'm, I'm, I'm giving up on that. I'm in year three of that. But you never know. Gold could strike somewhere, somehow. Could happen. And I do have some professional friends, former law students who are in pretty significant positions in the federal government. They, of course, have to get permission from the government to be able to speak. So I might start kicking off that process now to see about having them on. Yeah, let's dive into what the heck do we have to talk about on the first episode of the season, Paul? I mean, it's been so boring. No, it's not. But no, yeah, I mean, we we just were talking about going to Washington for IAPP. Yes. I will for sure be there. And this time you will for sure be there as well. So We'll do an on-the-floor best of from the IPP summit, of course. I still don't have a ticket for the actual summit, but I've got the plane ticket booked and the hotel booked, so I'm still kind of hoping till the last minute that somebody will throw me a free ticket, but hey. Trevor, if you're listening. Exactly, exactly. Toss K, one of those free tickets laying around there. We'll do something for you. We'll sing for our supper. We're good. And in any case, we are looking to do some sort of a live episode Yes. During the summit, where friends, contacts, stars can just walk up and talk to us for the uh, recording. Details to be determined, looking at all the possible options, but that is something that is coming as well. And I'm going to give Paul one of those tour guide flags that's, you know, six foot tall and has a little flag on it. We can walk around. No, I'll bring my umbrella. Might be like a two foot flag, but we might actually do that. It could happen. I could do it. For sure, good. One of the things that we will probably <laughs> be talking about is enforcement. Yes. Enforcement's a big issue. I joked with Paul, let's get Helen Dixon back on as the first guest for this season. We've had her on before. She's phenomenal to talk to. I don't know that she's got enough free time to come on our show to chat right now because she's incredibly busy if you've been watching the privacy news at all. Yes, she has been busy, and we are talking 395 million euro in fines, if I calculated correctly, of which, yeah, 395.5 million euro also be paid by Meta. Yeah. Three investigations, Instagram, Facebook, and WhatsApp, with WhatsApp clearly being on the low end of the ballpark with 5.5 million the other one's significantly higher. And looking at the reports by now, I've gone through all the 600 and something pages of reporting. I think there are a few issues here at stake. Okay. Question one is, is there a contract? Yes or no, when you accept terms of service. Question two mainly relates to behavioral targeting, behavioral advertising. And question three was much more about the, yeah, what was question three about? Just wrote it down. Hang on. So general transparency, is there a contract or not? 
the or the data processing for product in for, for a product improvement and for safety and security reasons, whether yes. that is allowed, whether that is considered to be necessary under the performance of a contract. Right. So let's peel these down a little. Let's let's, let's do it. At, so first of all, when you look at whether or not there is a contract when you accept terms of use, I think in general most commercial lawyers would agree that that is the case. And here the Data Protection Board basically starts moving into the realm of contract law, not for, not without reason that people are claiming that GDPR is the law of everything. So now suddenly contract law also becomes the, uh, the scope of influence, the sphere of influence of data protection authorities. But here the board said, well, because of the lack of transparency, we don't consider that this is a clear contract and certainly not a contract that you would be able to rely upon for all or most of your data processing operations. Well, and certainly not a contract between equal parties. No. There is definitely more, I wouldn't even say bargaining. There's no bargaining. All the power is on one side. You're just a yeah. product. That's the, the other part that they criticize, the take it or leave it approach that Meta is imposing on the terms of service. Also having very little possibility to opt out of certain data processing operations, including for marketing. Right. And that brings us to the behavioral advertising part. There the question was, can you rely upon performance of a contract for advertising? And here the board said clearly that is a no because... Individuals have the right always to opt out of direct marketing, either by withdrawing consent, if they gave consent in the first place, which should then be freely given and fully informed and a free choice, yep. Yep. which was not the case if you accept terms of service, because then it's take it or leave it, so no free choice. And you should be able to opt out or withdraw your consent just as easily as you gave it. Exactly. So that is on the consent part. If it is not consent, then it is legitimate interest. And then you always have the right to object, which is the opt-out, which also always needs to be respected. So right. the board says in, in both situations, you can only come to the conclusion that there should be a possibility to opt out of behavioral advertising, which means that it can never be necessary for the performance of a contract because then right. you would not be able to opt out. Right. And if you think about it, your own Facebook, there's always these little blurbs that go around about, oh, you must put on your profile right now, post this paragraph that you hereby don't give Facebook any IP. And if you don't post it by such and such date, which good God, that date was 10 years ago, then Facebook will now and forevermore own your data. Well, does, does that how you withdraw consent? You make a post on Facebook that I withdraw consent for behavioral advertising. I mean, that's as easy as you gave consent. Frankly, you should be able to think you, you're you withdrawing your consent and that mm -hmm. should withdraw your consent because that would be as easy as you gave it because you never really gave it. But okay. No, that's true. And, and at the very least, you should find something in your settings. And also there, it is not available there are no choices that you can make, at least not in the, the level of detail that you would expect under, under GDPR and e-privacy. They do have a lot of choices in their privacy settings on Facebook. They have way too many choices, which also makes it very complicated to understand what is be. exactly the point that you are agreeing or disagreeing with. Right, exactly. So there's a lot of work to be done there. Now, remind me, is Facebook appealing this? Oh, I'm sure they will be. Yeah. I mean, this is this is almost 400 million euros, so they'll be sure to appeal this and this will go up to the courts again, though to be continued. 
the final point though, that the board makes is Meta also relies on performance of a contract for product improvement and processing data for safety and security. And there are also the board yes. says this is not necessary. I think you can argue that point, whether or not it is necessary to be able, at least in any case, for safety and security right, to process right. certain data for product improvement. Maybe here in the U.S., we assume that that's happening, but everywhere else they don't. I think also in Europe, you should. This is something that that is also just part of regular business practice. The main point, however, is that the board says it is described too vaguely, and I think it would be better, by the way, to rely upon a legitimate interest for either of those. But also, then you should explain in more detail what it is you are doing, so that people who are not data protection geeks like we are might have a bit of an idea of what kind of data would be processed in what way, what kind of analytics would take place for product improvement, what kind of red flags could be could be posted for right. security issues or safety issues. So how to do all of that. And there, I do agree with the board that the lack of transparency is a serious problem, by the way, not yeah. just for Meta, but for a lot of companies. And, and let's not just leave it at the lack of transparency. Let's leave it at honesty and forthrightness, not trying to hide something in playing word games. The fairness principle? On, yeah. On the, on the flip side, though, if a company disclosed everything in their privacy notice, good Lord, it would be longer than my dissertation. Yeah. And nobody would read it anyway, except for privacy geeks, perhaps. But, you know, that's that's the balance we're running. I think I've said before, my teenage daughters way back when were asking, well, why do you write these things if no one reads them? Well, because you have to tell people. And how do you tell people without telling people? It's a vicious, vicious circle. I've been saying it for a while already that I would love to see the privacy space develop uh, more videos like the airline yeah. safety instruction videos. I'm hoping that one day I'll have the budget to do it myself for, for my own company. But that would be probably the perfect way. I mean, you can you can keep the legal text. You can keep right. the lengthy explanations in writing also there in reader-friendly versions. But someday it would be nice if you have that 30 seconds or one minute video where you just explain in an accessible and fun way, this is how we work with your data. I'm doing that. I, I won't have the budget to for a big production, so it'd just be a little video. And I don't yet know yet if I'm going to make like a little Muppet or something to do it. But I am going towards the ages of the learners that we have at our own company, OutSchool. And, you know, we go down to three years old and up to 18. And so I am breaking the ages up into the grade level. And I'm going to record videos because ages three to five, what do they understand? Okay. Uh, wheels in the bus go round and round, round and right. round, round right. and round. You know, don't give your full name. Don't tell people where you live. You know, things like that to go on up. And so I'm working mm -hmm. on doing that as well. I've reached out to Common Sense Media, which does a lot of evaluation of you know, companies and stuff to see what kind of knowledge have they gained already from privacy notices and children and stuff to know what resonates with them. So anyway, so and it probably spurned from your suggestion years ago of you would like to see videos explaining 
privacy notices. So I'm trying different ways because people learn in different ways too. That's true. Some are visual, some have to read, some have to hear it, you know, some have to do it. So it is. So, okay, we've got Facebook, we've got that. What's happening in, in, in the U.S.? I've seen a barrage of state legislation being presented. Yes. Yes. Let's look up what we have. So everybody thinks the federal season is over. We have a new non-functioning Congress. So let's take it back to the state level. Right. I think it's just coming out of 2022. One, it was a you know mid-year election cycle. People's focus was somewhere else. But two, everyone really thought that federal law was going to pass. Now we're realized that ain't likely to happen. So states are back at it once again. I think it's fabulous. We have several states that have introduced legislation. We've got Oregon and Oklahoma, never surprising. Indiana, New York, Iowa, Kentucky, Tennessee, never surprising. Massachusetts, New Jersey. Who else do we have? Oh, the one that surprised me, Mississippi. But, you know, Two years ago, when we were watching this, it's, it's hard to realize that in an entire season, we didn't have proposed state legislation. Go figure. Well, we had some We had some at the start of last year, but nothing came from it. Not really big. It's going to be big this year. We're going to follow these all through. And so the last time we really talked about states with proposed legislations and the ones that got tabled, like Bill C-27 in Canada got tabled, mm -hmm. Mississippi. Mississippi has a privacy law. I'm from Mississippi, y'all. Mississippi has a privacy <laughs> law proposed. That always surprises me. And, you know, nothing in the laws are really shocking. Of course, they don't align with each other. Obviously. Obviously. Anything from Washington? No, not Four, yet. Four, fifth, six-time six time lucky. I was actually looking to see if by the time we started today, if they did have one proposed. So let me look it up while I'm right here. See if Washington dropped one in the last day or two. Let's see. Nothing's coming up. Not seeing one yet. It, when they do pass one, it's going to be good. No doubt about it. So, yeah, as far as I can tell, they don't have one dropped yet. But, you know, that's one of the states that everybody looks to and says. It's likely to come. I mean. Yeah, we know, we know that it is. Yeah. Once you pass it, it's going to be a model, a model law for other states. But other states are driving. I did look up Arizona this morning to see if we had anything. I don't see an omnibus privacy law proposed yet in Arizona. There's a ton of other privacy-related laws related to minors, related to health care. There is one for biometrics, so different things mm -hmm. like that. So there's a lot of privacy-related laws. And if we got into a conversation about that, this session would be 12 hours long of the different things. But we have to quit piecemealing it. E even if we look at it on a state level, we have to quit piecemealing it. We need to put it together in an omnibus law that governs what we do. I'm not going to say everybody needs to be like California. I don't know how the end of the exemption for human resources or B2B data is going to impact. No other state addresses those. They mm -hmm. are written into the law as exemptions, which is totally against GDPR and most other privacy laws. So that in itself is going to be interesting to watch. So I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm energized. I'm invigorated by seeing more state laws come up. And I'm kind of really hoping federal happens. Kind of really hoping, but I got other things to worry about on the U.S. federal level. Well, you know, yeah, at the start of the year, I was 
looking at CNN and BBC News quite a lot during the soap opera that was called the Speaker Election. Uh huh. I don't don't have too many high hopes, to be honest, for Congress this year. I mean, something straightforward like electing a speaker is already so difficult. Then how do you pass legislation? I got nothing. I got nothing. I, I, that was a joke. I'm sorry. That, that was a joke. It was utterly ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Okay. So breaches so far in 2023, it would surprise you to learn what they are. I forget the first one that started, but we had the Twitter data breach, which there's a lot of stuff going around about Twitter, but there was a Twitter data breach, email addresses, 200 million Twitters, I believe being sold, I think for a very, very low price. They say the flaw was fixed, but the data was still out there. Chick-fil-A breach has suspicious activity. They've published information about what you should do if you notice suspicious activity on yours. So we had that. Didn't hear a lot about the Chick-fil-A one. PayPal breach. So there was, it's not necessarily that there was a breach. There was. Actors stole the login credentials. Not sure if it was all one thing or if it was across certain things, but people's breaches were breaches. People's accounts were being changed to another email address, they would take the money and then they change the email address back to the original that hopefully the original person would never load. Now, if you had two-factor authentication on your PayPal accounts, they shouldn't be able to do this. So you have that. And then MailChimp had a breach. They had one about six months ago. They had another one. They're saying it was very few accounts that were actually accessed, but they had that. And then probably the biggest one that everyone's hearing about is the T-Mobile data breach. 37 million, usually the prepaid customers, but it does include others. They thought they'd had data being accessed since, I don't know, November of last year or so. I use T-Mobile, so I have yet another year or two of data monitoring, but mm-hmm. that's about all they do here. I will say, though, that people who joined the class action suit against, oh, I forget who it was, and that settled, they've been posting their checks like $5.67 or something that they got as a payout from the class actions. So you mean to say that that money was actually literally sent in a paper check? One, I'm... I mean, they could have sent it to their PayPal accounts, but those were hacked. I mean, okay. The fact that the U.S. and France are still using paper checks is is still mind-boggling to me because they have been out of existence in the Netherlands since 1999. Yeah, my paper checks that I have still have my address from three addresses ago because who uses paper checks? Well, the French and apparently the Americans. And my checks have Disney villains on them. But, I mean, sending a check to somebody, I mean... Printing it, cutting it, filling it out, sending it must cost more than the five, six, seven dollars that you were talking about. It's so 20th century, right? It's 19th century. (laughs) It's just, yeah, I agree. But think back. I don't know if, if Europe did this or not, but here in the U.S., gosh, back when I was in high school or college, you used to print your social security numbers on the checks when you ordered them. Mm hmm. Yeah, that was the case, the, the social fiscal number, I believe. But yeah, that was the case here also back in the 90s. But it said, it, yeah, we haven't had checks since 1999 in the Netherlands. I've, I've used them once when I was living in France during my, my student years. And just 
for the fun of it, to be able to to say, I've used the check. I know how it works. Yes, people here still write checks. Go figure. I know. It's weird. Very annoying in the supermarket when there is somebody in front of you needs to write out a check write a by check. hand. You are waiting and looking at your watch and think, I want to move on. Let's be honest. Or paying in cash. Yeah, but that goes fairly quickly. Not here. Cash is still... Oh, okay. Well... <laughs> All right, moving on. So what's going on in Europe? Well, the you may recall, and our listeners may recall, the episode last year about the IAB Europe decision and the cookie consent banners with the transparency and yes. control framework, or consent framework. The appeal of that case is now before the Court of Justice of the European Union, but at the end of last year, early this year, around New Year, there were reports that apparently IAB Europe has struck a deal with the Belgian Data Protection Authority on the requirements for the new banner and what the new TCF, so TCF 3.0, should look like. And the Belgian DPA won't release full detail until the court case is fully settled, understandably. Right. So they also have put in quite a lot of caveats. I understand, yes, this is what we agree on, pending the, the, the judicial decisions. If all goes well, possibly if the sun rises at 6.37 a.m., then exactly. this is what we agreed on, yeah. Yeah. And also, IAB isn't talking about it too much. They have not released anything in public that nope, I've been able to find. I haven't seen find. anything. But they have been talking to the advertising industry. And one of the, the branch members in the Netherlands, VIA, has actually put a blog on their website outlining what the details of the new transparency and control Ooh, framework, I missed framework that. would be. Okay. And of course, that's in Dutch. But the... That form... might be why I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did put a... An English version on, on my LinkedIn. We'll put it in the show notes. But the there are four main points, I would say, that, that will change. First of all, profiling and personalized advertising can only take place on the basis of consent. Duh, you would say, but that was still... Yeah, legitimate interest should go away. Well, it should and it doesn't. Um, because the further processing, the further use of the so-called TC string, that is the key identifier, will still be allowed on the basis of legitimate interest. Okay. Revoking of consent via the cookie banner should become easier and will become easier in the new framework. And also, apparently, there is no need for a decline all banner on the first layer. Ooh. So, big point, I mean, that, you should be able to rely upon consent only and that consent should easily be withdrawn. Those are the obvious ones that everybody has been talking about for years and saying, take care of this because this is just not right. I'm not so sure about the legitimate interest part because it cannot be used for collection. It cannot be used for initial data processing, I would say. But for further use, for further compatible use, you should also go back to either the original legal basis or to consent. So how you right. can say that can lose legitimate interest for further processing, I'm not so sure. I, I just don't understand it. Maybe they'll publish more details with it when they come? I hope so. I hope that we get a full legal analysis on, on how this would work, because otherwise... I would not be able to explain it. And I consider yeah. myself fairly knowledgeable on the legal basis in the GDPR. So maybe somebody should say, okay, this is how it works. Let, let's ask Alexander Hanf. Well, he 
probably would say rubbish. He has a lot to say about cookies and trackers. Yeah, but it comes down to rubbish, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you you really could reduce it to, to that. That's true. We'll have an arm in the coming weeks to, to talk about this. You have now reached the 30-minute mark in the Serious Privacy Podcast. Should you wish to take a break now, please feel free to do so. And come right back. The, the other point that I find surprising is that revocation, that there is no need for a decline all button on the first layer. If you look at all the cookie guidance from European data right. protection authorities, especially the French and the Germans in recent years, if you look at the outcomes of the cookie consent task force of the EDPB right. that was also released this week. Right. Also there, the vast majority of European DPAs state that a decline all button at the first layer is a requirement. So right. why would Belgium come to the conclusion that it is not? Hmm. I don't understand it. More information to come, we hope. At some point, when the court case is finalized. But right now, we have no idea. That's going to be interesting. You know, here in the U.S., we have a lot of conversation over cookies as well because of California's law going into effect. Mm -hmm. And and Virginia's that went active on January 1st. California's not going to be enforced till July 1st, but there's a lot of conversation about necessarily cookies, but opting in, opting out of selling your data under the various definitions, sharing your data under California's definition, opting out of targeted behavioral advertising and profiling because Colorado and Connecticut go, go live July 1st. Utah comes up at the very end of the year. The other state laws that are here, they probably won't go active immediately. Very few laws take the tactic that China did of, oh, we passed a law and in six weeks, you need to comply. <laughs> you know, people are trying to figure out what do they need to do for California, especially with the Sephora decision where the attorney general really hammered home global privacy control. Yep. No, that's certainly true. What, what do you do? What do you need to do? And, and if you look at it at its very basics... If you don't have any other information that's been shared with the company, you, you haven't given them anything else, you haven't signed up for newsletters, you're not a customer, you don't have a loyalty card, you have nothing else, then you should be able to use cookie opt-out for the do not selling and do not sharing of your data because they have nothing else of you other than cookies and trackers to sell or share. Mm -hmm. But if you have done business with them, then it operates more like an individual rights. You have to be able to tell them who you are. You can't expect them to recognize you just because you open your browser. Not all companies actually retain the IP addresses to cross-reference. So, you know, so that part would act like an individual rights request for do not selling, for opting out, for doing different things like that. So it's interesting. We're going to see a lot of technology confusion. Yeah. here in a while. And it's going to be worldwide. Let's be honest. It's going to be worldwide confusion because Europe's cookies, this confusing statement of decline all on the first layer. I mean, that reminds me of the, you know, Z, uh, what was it they used to call a cookie blocker mm -hmm. where you could get nothing except for the cookie consent. So different things like that. So it's going to be a little confusing this year. Hopefully we'll have some information to share. Some developments will happen. We'll be able to talk about that. But I do think this whole cookies and trackers and opting out and profiling and TBA not going away anytime soon. No, and obviously, I mean, th there will be more guidance. There will be more enforcement. There will be court decisions. So right. This is certainly a topic to, to be continued.
something else that has really come up in the past couple of weeks is ChatGPT. Ah. I was actually looking at maybe letting ChatGPT write the introduction for this episode, but I haven't gotten around to it yet <laughs> to see if they were able to do it. But they could probably write the the description, you know, that we post. We can yeah. see. I haven't used them for anything. Okay, we tried it. Here's our chat GPT little summary. Welcome to Season 4 of the Serious Privacy Podcast. This season, we will be diving into the latest privacy concerns and developments in the digital age. From government surveillance to data breaches, we'll discuss the impact these issues have on our daily lives and what steps we can take to protect ourselves. Join us as we explore the complex and ever-evolving world of privacy in the digital age. It's a scary development. Yeah. Because in, they are pretty much on point. I mean, they're not always legally sound, obviously, but the way language is, is formulated is pretty impressive. Yeah. At the same time, if you look at all the, the training data, about 50% apparently is from the US, about 20% from Europe, and only... I think 5% all in all from the Southern Hemisphere. So talk about bias in, in artificial right. intelligence. You clearly have it there. And the next version is already coming, which has, I think, a hundredfold more training data than this version has. So it will even be more accurate. It's fascinating and terrifying. It is. And from that perspective, I think it's good that we'll see some more legislation on artificial intelligence. Yeah. For a long time. I've been wondering whether we actually need it. I would expect that before I would expect omnibus privacy laws, frankly. Yeah, and it's certainly in the U.S. that I think that that's true. For a long time, I wondered whether we would actually need artificial intelligence legislation because we have data protection laws. We have the fairness principles. We have other data laws. They don't um, cover it all. But I think in the end, it might actually be good to have some laws that specifically direct their attention to artificial intelligence. In that her... way, the attorneys for artificial intelligence can't wiggle their way through the law and say, well, this doesn't apply to AI because blah, blah, blah. There's always attorneys that wiggle their way through the law, maybe even helped by their own artificial intelligence. I don't know. Who knows? But you're right. You're right. It's terrifying. It's fascinating. People are playing with it left or right, which gives it even more training data. I, I don't know if I'm eager to see the next iteration or not, but it's worth having the conversation because, again, like other technology that's been coming out in the past two decades, the conversation is yet again, is this going to replace privacy officers? Is this going to replace lawyers? Is this going to have people lose their jobs? Maybe, maybe on some level, there, there might be a grain of truth in there, but it's going to create more jobs too because it's just going it to make it a little bit more sure. complex. Exactly just going to change the scope of what we of what we uh, focus on what we handle and that's wow but as you mentioned the southern hemisphere i mean that's one thing i don't want to look over we do have legislation being proposed in a lot of southern hemisphere countries especially in africa we've got namibia we've got united republic of tanzania i think that one was fairly recent We've got Ethiopia with some draft legislation, and then we move further north. We've got Saudi Arabia and Iraq coming out. I don't think you and I discussed the Iraq one last year and all. And we've got draft legislation in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And we still have India. And we still have India, which is, of course, still pending. Um, 
Exactly. Big move away from the previous bill. This one might actually be more more successful also because India will hold the G20 presidency this year and the G20 is actually also very much advocating stronger data protection rules and working on cross-border data protection rules together with the G7 and the OECD, right. as also Gabriela Zenfir notes in her yearly lookout. We have Argentina, also Southern Hemisphere, um, yep. still working on their updated data protection rules. Um, and also Australia is looking to update Revising their data theirs. protection legislation. Keep an eye on Canada. They constantly try to change something there. Not necessarily that it moves forward, but they are trying to change. They are trying to update. And so if you go to any of the maps that show you what legislation is in place, I love the map at the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. That's one of the resources that I go to. But on that map, keep in mind that the countries that already have privacy or data protection legislation in place and they're looking at amending it aren't necessarily called out on this. It's one of the things that I missed from this map. I wish it did track the ones that are looking at amending or or I guess amending is the word. The ones that are amending their laws, I'd love to be able to see those tracked as easily. There's lots of different trackers you can go to that can show you. This just happens to be one of my favorites. And I always recommend it to the law students. Just on that line, some of my other go-to resources, I love the DLA Piper Global Privacy Laws chart. Yep. And how you can compare. I love how they break it down. Phenomenal job there. And then for the U.S. state data breaches, there's a lot of really good ones out there. Don't get me wrong. There's a ton. But I fell in love with Mints 11 years ago. So it's still my go-to for U.S. state data breach laws. And so there are some really good resources out there. I was just talking to someone else about how do you stay on top of data privacy laws? Well, my resource was always Nimity. Mm-hmm. That's how you me. stay that, on top. That's one of them. Um, yep. And social media also still is. Or... LinkedIn is the big one. LinkedIn is a is a big one for all EU enforcement cases. It's GDPRhub.eu, which has a whole range of volunteers that outline so court cases and regulator decisions in English. It works really well. GDPR Beetle is a great resource for all the pending cases before the Court of Justice of the European yes. Union. Well over 60 cases at the moment, 60 that are pending, who talks about lack of case law now. Um, yep. So yes, those are all amazing resources. Twitter was actually a very big resource for me. Um, I don't know about now. Yeah. No, well, it's, it's annoying. It's it's yeah. annoying because an, an egomaniac tech billionaire just ruined it for everybody. Yeah. And I wasn't a big Twitter user to begin with. I automatically repost some some accounts I like, but you know, I I might go check it once once a week or something to go look at it. So I was never a really big Twitter user, but of course carried the presence. But yeah, LinkedIn, Nimity, some of these wonderful sites that I trust and I go to, I hate newsletters. Let me just be yes. honest. Let me do it once again. I hate newsletters. Have I been part of a company or an effort that put out newsletters? Of yeah. course. Everybody has. And but I, I understand why newsletters are there, but indeed, in, in, except for the daily compliance alert from Nimity, yeah. I hardly read them. Politico, that's the other one that I do read. Yeah. Law360 always has some really good stories, but I, I don't like actually going there using that. It's it's interesting that, you know, if you find a resource you really love that does a newsletter, maybe you love that newsletter. 
But otherwise, I mean, okay, here's another one. And I usually keep up with it on LinkedIn, the Hintsey Privacy Law Firm. I usually watch what they post and what they're doing. They may actually do a newsletter. So I apologize, Susan and Mike, but you are one of the resources I go to. So it is interesting how people pick and choose. And that's one thing I'd love to hear from our fans or our listeners is what are your favorite resources? I mean, there's a lot going on. What are, what are your favorite resources you have? Maybe we can share resources out with other people. I will say that there was a post on LinkedIn the other day that was talking about a particular company and they didn't like them. And I'm like, I don't either. And someone came back and said, well, then what do you like? And so I was able to, I'm a raving fan of TrustArc. I love what they do. That's never going to change. I think Paul is the same way. We're raving fans. That's just yep. a fact. If they ever turn out to where they're not good, we may just be like, oh, poo-poo on you. But mm, the expertise that they bake into it, I mean. So far, so good in any case. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Moving on, there was something else I wanted to talk about, and that was some of the tips and tricks as you're going into 2023. It's January. If you don't have your standard contractual clauses figured out yet that you could only use old ones up through December 27th of last year, you really need to get on that. And I'll be honest, most of the time the vendors have their own prepared. You may not even need your own template. You just need to reach out to your vendors and see what they have. Some of the smaller ones might uh, not. I'm in a lot of fights with, with tech vendors on this. Hmm. Because they say, oh, yeah, but if you just accept our DP, then I've also immediately automatically accepted the new standard contractual clauses. Uh, and that is not something that I'm willing to do. I'm not willing to accept a DPA that is not negotiated. And I'm not in favor of accepting standard contractual clauses by reference with dynamic nexus that are not fixed in time. So I'm I'm actually becoming more and more annoyed with the way that a lot of companies are dealing yeah. with their standardized approach. And they're just trying to make it easy. But that was one of the things that the board said when they issued them is they should never be templates. They should always be individualized. It's case by case. Yeah. You need to be specific because you need to be able to read the contract because standard contractual clauses are a contract. You need to be able to read the contract and understand what the data processing is about. So when right. we talk about what personal data is involved, I want to see a full list and not things such as a name and an email address. No, I want the full list, including all the technical data that you might collect behind the scenes. When we talk about which is the competent supervisory authority, I want to agree on that when we sign the contract and not yeah repeat the language from the SECs that can become contentious at a later stage. When we talk about subprocessors, I want to have the list that applies at the moment of signing and not yeah. just a reference to a dynamic list. And there are parts where I'm willing to compromise depending on the contract, depending on the type of data. But I have my, of course, European-inspired, DPA-inspired compliance approach. Right. And American companies are just like, Oh, yeah, but that doesn't work for us because we are too big for that. Yeah. And you don't have bargaining power. And because you are big, you don't have to comply with the law. I expect at some point that there will be a complaint made to the supervisory authorities over some of this approach. But I can see both sides. They're like, yeah, but we have thousands and hundreds of thousands of customers. How can we possibly 
you know, personalize each one. I get it. I get it. It's it's trying to comply with the law, but on a practical implementation basis, it's really, really difficult. And the vast majority of companies doesn't care about individualization. So you are maybe talking a handful of companies that that yeah. that make a request to for personalization or that even just true. for personalized execution. Yeah. Just put a signature on it. You should exactly. have a process to accommodate that. And I will say that, you know, I do redline DPAs and I get them. What I would, what I meant was when you get the standard contractual clauses from the vendor, mm-hmm. they should have theirs. You don't necessarily have to worry about, you know, building your own. They should have, and they're, they're templates. The SECs are standardized. They are, but even, even if they are templated by a lot of companies, they are lacking because they are not, they are not in full detail. Yeah. And I will say I came across one where when you chose the uh, advisory authority, they selected all three options. I was like, that's not possible. There's one of three options that applies based on your circumstances and you can't be all three. So that was it. But I will say I do modify a lot of DPAs. And because of doing that, I'm actually writing a handbook for GDPR, let's say European companies who comply with the GDPR, who are now vendors to companies in the U.S. And when they're asked about their COPPA compliance or their HIPAA compliance, Hmm. heaven forbid, it might be FERPA compliance, which is education. They usually come back with, we're compliant with the GDPR. It's the strongest law in the world. We're good. Mm, No, you're not. HIPAA as a sectoral law is probably stronger. But we also tend to dictate specifics, specific Mm -hmm. wording you need to have in a contract, specific rights you need to do, specific steps you need to follow. And I'm going to have to quit saying specific because that's putting a lot of hisses in my word that I'll have to try to take out on audio. But I have found this a problem. One of the ones that I've seen when I wrote back and said, your DPA is not compliant with California's requirements because California has some very specific requirements that you need to have in contract. They had them already under the CCPA. The CPRA added some new requirements. And these are things your contract actually has to say. It has to have that language. Now, could you say storing rather than retaining? You could. You could say that. Could you say processing, which encompasses everything, rather than using? Probably. Probably. But the sale of data is, of course, very California-specific. Exactly. The selling, the sharing. And you have to specifically say that you will not sell or share the data for any other purposes outside the business purpose of the contract or the business relationship. You have to qualify those. And probably the biggest ones that I see that's missing is you have to say that you certify that you understand the requirements. That certification has to be in there. Will California go by if you say, I agree to comply? Not a certification. You have to certify. Yeah, that's the point that annoys me most when dealing with U.S. companies in GDPR contract negotiations. Typically, one of their first provisions in the DPA is that as a data controller, you are responsible for full compliance with the GDPR, which is understandable, acceptable. And then you can sign at the dot of their DPA. And then I tell them, so explain to me, if you want me to be fully compliant, how do I give you instructions if you prescribe all the instructions that I give you? Right. 
And that that's a problem with the standard contractual clauses in the GDPR that Paul and I have argued from the beginning. There are processors out there that the reason you hire them is they have the expertise. It is very difficult for you to give them anything other than a general instruction of, I want you to process our credit cards. You don't tell them how to process it, what to store, where to send it, what kind of hashing. You, you don't prescribe all that. You tell them, I want you to process the credit cards, or I want you to form this list of people into a blankety blank blank. You're hiring them for their expertise because they have the expertise and you don't. Mm -hmm. So I agree that that one, there is a problem. You have very little alternatives for being able to, to prescribe what they are. And I think we're hitting an hour. So let's see if we need to close this down. If we are at an hour, we may break it into two 30 minute segments. Heck, we may, we may publish it both ways. You can have one at an hour or you can have two 30-minute segments. That way you can walk the dog or you can exercise. Let's just release it as one. That's easier. And people can enjoy it. They can listen in stages. And then from episode two, we'll be, we'll be in regular cadence of the 30, 35 minutes an episode. Well, we'll also get better at our descriptions and putting the little stops in or whatever. I did suggest to Paul that we do this episode as a LinkedIn Live. And we just record this as we were on LinkedIn just to honor data protection day. Paul wasn't about that. No, for many reasons. I don't want to do yeah. video. And also the audio quality from LinkedIn Live is not something that is reliable. I figured we could keep them both running. Mm. We could do LinkedIn Live and Riverside. No, I think computers would probably start. It won't share the camera. Two computers. <laughs> anyway, that's the end of our show. Paul, give our closing. Find us. Like yes, us, well, thank you. Us. Thank you for listening to yet another episode of Serious Privacy, season four. Who would ever believe season that? four? If you like the episodes, do tell your friends and colleagues about us and share the episode with them or share your favorite episodes with them. Like and subscribe in your favorite podcast app or on your favorite podcast platform. Join the conversation on LinkedIn via Serious Privacy. You'll just type in in the search bar Serious Privacy. And you'll find the podcast page. Kay is still on Twitter as Heart of Privacy. I'm still on Twitter as at EuropolB, but you'll also find me on Mastodon as at EuropolB at EUPolicy.social. I think I joined a Mastodon. Probably if you look for EuropolB on Mastodon, you'll, you'll find me too. Shout out to the folks at TapBots for creating Ivory, which is a great app on, on iPhone to use Mastodon. What else? Reach out via email via podcast at seriousprivacy.eu. And that's all for this week. Until next week. Goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because they're... Deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that. 
helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central. Seriously, one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me and Paul if you have any questions. <laughs>